Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. The only way to get our lives back, to get our economy back on track, is to beat the virus. That's why I'm using every power I have as President of the United States to put us on a war footing to get the job done. I said I intended to get 100 million shots in people's arms in my first 100 days in office. Tonight, I can say we're not only going to meet that goal, we're going to beat that goal. Because we've actually on track to reach this goal of 100 million shots in arms on my 60th day in office. Tonight, I'm announcing that I will direct all states, tribes, and territories to make all adults, people 18 and over, eligible to be vaccinated no later than May 1. We're going to go from a million shots a day that I promised in December before I was sworn in, to maintaining, beating our current pace of 2 million shots a day. I will not relent until we beat this virus. But I need you, the American people, I need you. Beating this virus and getting back to normal depends on national unity. And national unity isn't just how politics and politicians vote in Washington what the loudest voices say on cable or online. Unity is what we do together as fellow Americans. Because if we don't stay vigilant and the conditions change, then we may have to reinstate restrictions to get back on track. And please, we don't want to do that again. If we do this together, by July the 4th, there's a good chance you, your families and friends, We'll be able to get together in your backyard or in your neighborhood and have a cookout and a barbecue and celebrate Independence Day. After this long, hard year, that will make this Independence Day something truly special. We faced and overcame one of the toughest and darkest periods in this nation's history. This is the United States of America. And there's nothing, nothing, from the bottom of my heart, I believe this, there's nothing we can't do when we do it together. Yet history has shown that the masses have been quite receptive to the promises of authoritarians, which are, are rarely, if ever, fulfilled. Should we have authoritarianism or liberty? If authoritarianism leads to poverty and war and less freedom for all individuals and is controlled by rich special interests, the people should be begging for liberty. There certainly was a strong enough sentiment for more freedom at the time of our founding that motivated those who were willing to fight in the revolution against the powerful British government. During my time in Congress, the appetite for liberty has been quite weak. The understanding of its significance negligible. 
Yet the good news is that compared to 1976, when I first came to Congress, the desire for more freedom and less government in 2012 is much greater and growing, especially in grassroots America. Tens of thousands of teenagers and college-age students are, with great enthusiasm, welcoming the message of liberty. I have a few thoughts as to why the people of a country like ours, once the freest and most prosperous, allowed the conditions to deteriorate to the degree that they have. Freedom, private property, and enforceable voluntary contracts generate wealth. In our early history, we were very much aware of this. But in the early part of the 20th century, our politicians promoted the notion that the tax and monetary system had to change. If we were to involve ourselves in excessive domestic and military spending, that is why Congress gave us the Federal Reserve and the income tax. The majority of Americans and many government officials agreed that sacrificing some liberty was necessary to carry out what some claim to be progressive ideas. Pure democracy became acceptable. They failed to recognize that what they were doing was exactly opposite of what the colonists were seeking when they broke away from the British. Some complain that my arguments make no sense, since great wealth and the standard of living improved for many Americans over the last hundred years even with these new policies. But the damage to the market economy and the currency has been insidious and steady. It took a long time to consume our wealth, destroy the currency, and undermine productivity, and get our financial obligations to a point of no return. Confidence sometimes lasts longer than deserved. Most of our wealth today depends on debt. The wealth that we enjoyed and seemed to be endless allowed concern for the principle of a free society to be neglected. As long as most people believed the material abundance would last forever, worrying about protecting a competitive, productive economy and individual liberty seemed unnecessary. The age of redistribution. This neglect ushered in an age of redistribution of wealth by government, kowtowing to any and all special interests, except for those who just wanted to be left alone. That is why today, money in politics far surpasses money currently going into research and development and productive entrepreneurial efforts. The material benefits became more important than the understanding and promoting the principles of liberty and a free market. It is self-evident that our freedoms have been severely limited and the apparent prosperity we still have is nothing more than leftover wealth from a previous time. This fictitious wealth based on debt and benefits from a false trust in our currency and credit will play havoc with our society when the bills come due. This means that the full consequence of our lost liberties is yet to be felt. But that illusion is now ending. Reversing a downward spiral depends on accepting a new approach. I never believed that the world or our country could be made more free by politicians if the people had no desire for freedom. Under the current circumstances, the most we can hope to achieve in the political process is to use it as a podium to reach the people to alert them of the nature of the crisis and the importance of their need to assume responsibility for themselves. If it is liberty that they truly seek, 
Without this, a constitutionally protected free society is impossible. If this is true, our individual goal in life ought to be for us to seek virtue and excellence and recognize that self-esteem and happiness only comes from using one's natural ability in the most productive manner possible, according to one's own talents. Own talents. Productivity and creativity are the true source of personal satisfaction. Freedom and not dependency provides the environment needed to achieve these goals. Government cannot do this for us. It only gets in the way. When the government gets involved, the goal becomes a bailout or a subsidy, and these cannot provide a sense of personal achievement. The solution can only come from rejecting the use of coercion, compulsion, government commands, and aggressive force to mold social and economic behavior. Without accepting these restraints, inevitably the consensus will be to allow the government to mandate economic equality and obedience to the politicians who gain power and promote an environment that smothers the freedoms of everyone. Howdy, everybody. CJ here, your humble, hazardous history helmsman, back with another dastardly dose of dangerous historical discourse. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about gray champions. And if you're not familiar with that terminology, I'm going to be explaining it shortly. But before I get into that, I really, really have to give a genuine, sincere, heartfelt thank you. As you know, if you listened to my last episode, I've been really struggling lately, and a lot of it has to do with things related to my day job, which I won't rehash here. But in the last episode, I kind of put out the distress call to my listeners. Hey, if you're not a financial supporter of the show, please consider doing so. And if you are, maybe you can consider upping your amount of support because I really need your help and I'm trying to extract myself from my day job. Hopefully, if all goes well in the next year or two but that I can't do it without you guys helping me. And the more you all help me, the sooner I can do it and not only be able to do more podcasting, but also keep what's left of my sanity and maybe even regain some of the sanity and mental health that I've lost. And I just have to say that you all, the listeners of this podcast, have so far exceeded my expectations. And I hope that you will continue to do so. I hope that more of you will continue to sign up as supporters and that more of you who are already supporters, if you have the means and desire, might consider upping your level of support. But I just want to say everybody, no matter how great or small your contribution, everybody 
who has been supporting the show and to everybody who has in recent weeks signed up for the first time as a supporter and to everybody who was already a supporter and increased their level of support since I put out that distress call. I just want to say I really, really, really appreciated it. Really did, even just in the short term, make my mental health a little bit better. And so heartfelt, sincere thanks to everybody who stepped up. I hope more of you will continue to do so. And in particular, I want to single out one listener, Chris. You know who you are. Chris was already a regular monthly supporter of the show, and then he sent in an extremely generous one-time donation that just absolutely dumbfounded me and is a giant help to me in my situation. So, Chris, I really can never thank you enough, but thank you. Okay, so getting into the episode for today. What you heard before the intro music was a little bit of audio from President Joe Biden, and then a longer segment of audio from a number of years ago from then-Congressman Ron Paul. Now, the audio clips of Biden, many of you may recognize where they're from. It's from his first primetime TV address to the nation, which happened pretty recently. I forget the exact date. Now, I could have easily played countless minutes of Biden's dumbest and or most offensive gaffes. Because the man, as most of you probably know, has been a gaffe machine for basically his entire career. You know, long before he started to lose his mind and have dementia or whatever the hell it is he's going through. He already was not a terribly inspiring or effective speaker, and he already was extremely gaffe prone. So I could have easily just played a whole bunch of clips of those. I also, of course, could have played clips from the many, many instances of him just, you know, completely losing his train of thought and exhibiting senility and decline, particularly in the last year or two. But I chose to take the high road. I basically steel-manned Biden by playing audio in which he was, for the most part, pretty lucid and coherent. Now, the audio of Ron Paul is from his farewell speech as he was about to retire from the Congress in 2012. And it's not his best speech in many ways. There are plenty of better moments in speeches and debates you can find of him where he's more fired up and passionate and, you know, really on and having that symbiotic relationship with an energetic and supportive audience. In this speech, he was basically talking to what looks like a mostly empty House of Representatives, and the few people who were listening, you know, live in person, probably mostly either didn't care and were ignoring what he was saying, or if anything, they would have been actively hostile to most of his ideas. Furthermore, keep in mind, Ron Paul in 2012 was 77 years old. So you do hear a little bit of old mannishness, for lack of a better term, coming through in his speech every now and then, although it's nothing remotely like what Uncle Joe exhibits these days on a regular basis. So basically, my point is that I played one of the better recent speeches by Biden in terms of coherence and lucidity, and contrasted that with really kind of a middle-of-the-road speech by Ron Paul. It's by no means a bad speech, but it's not his best. And even with me kind of stacking the deck a bit in favor of Biden, and even setting aside the fact that I, and probably most of you who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, are ideologically much more favorable to Ron Paul, you know, even granting all of that, wouldn't the neutral observer, 
just trying to objectively evaluate these two guys have to admit there is a noticeable difference between these two men, even just in terms of overall sharpness and intellectual depth. I mean, clearly, I think you would have to conclude that not all old men are created equal. That some old men are more equal than others. And that if you compare Joe Biden at 78 to Ron Paul at 77, or even Ron Paul today at, you know, 85 or whatever he is currently, I think he's 85 or about to turn 85, Biden comes away decidedly wanting. So in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the idea of a gray champion, and I'm going to be doing a little bit more comparing and contrasting of Joe Biden versus Ron Paul in this archetypal role. Now, this idea of a gray champion, as I'm going to use it today, comes in part from a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne that I'll be reading at the end of this episode. But the particular kind of archetypal application of this idea to American history as a whole comes from William Strauss and Neil House's theory of generations in U.S. history, which was most famously elaborated by them in their book, The Fourth Turning. Now, I covered the idea of cyclical history, and in particular, the Strauss-Howe Fourth Turning Generational Theory, way, way back in DHP episode number 140, which I made what seems like a lifetime ago back in May of 2017, almost four years ago. I'll be sure to throw a link in the show notes of this episode to that one for those of you who haven't listened to it before or who maybe listened to it back when it first came out and maybe haven't listened to it since and need a refresher. I myself just recently re-listened to it probably for the first time since I published it in 2017. And I have to say, I'm often my own worst critic when I listen to old episodes, but I thought this one was pretty good. So anyway, Strauss and Howe, I'll give kind of the quick overview version of their generational theory, but I would urge you, if you're not familiar with their theory, go listen to DHP episode 140 to get much more of a broad and deep overview of the idea. But they base their idea around a concept called the saculum, which goes back to the ancient Etruscans and then comes to us largely through the conduit of the Romans, who were heavily influenced by the Etruscans in ancient Italy. And this idea of the saculum is central to Strauss and Howe's theory about different archetypes of generations repeating themselves in a predictable order and then coinciding with certain eras in history. The idea of the saculum is that it is the length of a long human life, so approximately 80 to 100 years, give or take. And as Strauss and Howe note, many different types of cycles in human history tend to repeat themselves approximately every 80 to 100 years. Strauss and Howe break a human lifespan, a long human lifespan, into four phases. Namely, childhood, young adulthood, middle age, and elderhood. And each of these phases of life lasts approximately 20 years. So. What they define as childhood is up to about age 20. What they define as young adulthood is basically your 20s and 30s. Midlife is your 40s and 50s, and elderhood is after that. 
Now, because they look at generations through the prism of these four phases of life, each of which lasts approximately 20 years, Strauss and Howe define a quote-unquote generation as lasting approximately 20 years, give or take. Now, other people who've written and spoken about generations vary. Some will define a generation as being only a 10-year span of birthdays, but more common is somewhere between 10 and 20. Strauss and Howe talk about generations as being largely defined by what phase of life you're at when certain types of great events occur. So, for example, when Pearl Harbor happened, were you a child? If so, then you were part of the silent generation. Were you a young adult of military age when it happened? If so, you're part of the GI or greatest generation. Were you already in midlife? In which case, if we're talking about Pearl Harbor, you'd be part of the so-called lost generation. And if you were an elderly person when Pearl Harbor happened, you were part of what Strauss and Howe call the missionary generation. Now, depending on where you are in your life when an event like this happens, Strauss and Howe argue, this then affects greatly how you perceive the event and thus what effect that event has on your personality and perception of the world and of your entire generation, right? So if you're a little kid when Pearl Harbor happens, you're going to have a different experience of it and kind of a different takeaway from it in terms of how it affects the rest of your life and your worldview and all that than if you're a young adult versus if you're an elderly person versus if you're in middle age, etc. And the same thing could be said about where you're at, you know, when 9-11 happens or whatever. So as Strauss and Howe write about generations, quote, The length of a generation in birth years should approximate the length of a phase of life in years of age. Before the early 19th century, American generations should average about 25 years in length. Since then, they should average about 21 years. Necessarily, these lengths can vary somewhat for each generation, depending on the vagaries of history and the precise timing of great events. To apply these lengths to real birth years, you have to locate an underlying generational persona. Every generation has one. It's a distinctly human and variable creation, with attitudes about family life, gender roles, institutions, politics, religion, lifestyle, and the future. Like any social category, race, class, or nationality, a generation can allow plenty of individual exceptions and be fuzzy at the edges. But unlike other categories, it possesses its own personal biography. There is no fixed formula for identifying the persona of a real-life generation. But it helps to look for three attributes. First, a generation's common location in history. Second, its common beliefs and behavior. And third, its perceived membership in a common generation. End quote. So, Strauss and Howe have an interesting kind of Jungian conception of generational archetypes, and they provide literary and mythological as well as historical references to illustrate these things if you read the book The Fourth Turning. And according to Strauss and Howe, these four generational archetypes tend to repeat themselves again and again and again, mostly in the same order with very few exceptions, as each generation responds to the circumstances in which it is born and raised. And they trace this pattern all the way back, uh, if I remember right, at least as far back as kind of Elizabethan England. 
and then transplanted across the ocean to the American colonies. These generations then repeat themselves within four different types of eras that repeat themselves as well. So more on that in a moment. But the four generational archetypes that Strauss and Howe talk about are prophet, nomad, hero, and artist. And they say they almost always repeat in the same order as history goes along. So a prophet generation is born during an era that they call a high. Again, more on that in a minute. Strauss and Howe say that a prophet generation, quote, grows up as increasingly indulged post-crisis children, comes of age as the narcissistic young crusaders of an awakening, cultivates principle as moralistic midlifers, and emerges as wise elders, guiding the next crisis, end quote. And they identify the baby boomers as the current prophet generation. After the prophets, you get a nomad generation. The nomads are born during what Strauss and Howe call an awakening, and they are neglected as children by self-absorbed artist and prophet parents who are themselves preoccupied with their own self during the awakening. Nomad generations, according to Strauss and Howe, tend to get pretty shafted both early in life and late in life. They are kids when kids are tending to be neglected by society, and then they are elderly during periods where society tends to shift more resources away from the elderly and towards the young. So they get screwed. They're kids when kids are being neglected and older people are getting more resources lavished upon them. And then by the time they move into elderhood, the nomads are neglected yet again because they're becoming elderly at a time when society is tending to shift the opposite way from lavishing resources on the old to lavishing more resources again on the young. So Strauss and Howe write of a nomad generation that it, quote, grows up as underprotected children during an awakening, comes of age as the alienated young adults of a post-awakening world, mellows into pragmatic midlife leaders during a crisis, and ages into tough post-crisis elders, end quote. And Strauss and Howe say that the current nomad generation is Generation X. Then there's the archetype they call a hero generation. And these are people who are born during an era that Strauss and Howe call an unraveling. They say that this sort of generation, quote, grows up as increasingly protected post-awakening children, comes of age as the heroic young team workers of a crisis, demonstrates hubris as energetic midlifers, and emerges as powerful elders attacked by the next awakening, end quote. Strauss and Howe say that these types of generations are known for their coming-of-age achievements and also for their hubris once they become older. And Strauss and Howe say that the GI or greatest generation, right, the generation who were of military service age during World War II, were a hero generation, and furthermore, they argue that millennials are the next hero generation. Then there's the artist generation. They are born during a crisis, and as such, they tend to be overprotected as children because they're kids when there's a crisis going on, and their raising is more than anything else geared towards getting along with others and accommodating themselves. 
So Strauss and Howe write that this sort of generation, quote, grows up as overprotected children during a crisis, comes of age as the sensitive young adults of a post-crisis world, breaks free as indecisive midlife leaders during an awakening, and ages into empathetic post-awakening elders, end quote. And Strauss and Howe say that the so-called silent generation, those people born between the greatest generation and the boomers, are artist generation people. And furthermore, they argue that Gen Z, the people born after the millennials, are also going to be of an artist generation. Now, I should point out here that Strauss and Howe say that none of these four archetypes of generations are in any way inherently better or worse than the others, but that essentially they're all necessary in kind of the same way that you need all four seasons in nature for everything to sort of balance out and work the way it's supposed to. So they write, quote, These four archetypes have lent balance and self-correction to the continuing story of America. Were our ancestral legacy to have had too much or too little of any of the four, we would today be poorer for it, end quote. Now, Strauss and Howe argue that in addition to four generational archetypes repeating themselves in the same order, you also have four different types of ages or eras, or as they often call them, turnings, that also each of these turnings is about, you know, 20 years a generation in terms of length of time, and that these repeat themselves in the same order as well. So while the different generational archetypes are repeating themselves, so are the different turnings. And because they're basically synced, you know, each are repeating in the same roughly 20 years, give or take cycle. This means that during every turning, the four generations are in the same phases of life as their predecessors were the last time that particular turning occurred, right? So the first turning they talk about is what they call a high. And a high is thought of as the spring of the cycle of turnings. A high is the 20 years or so in the aftermath of the previous crisis. So during a high, the older prophet generation is dying off, and the nomads are entering elderhood, and the heroes are entering midlife, artists are entering young adulthood, and the next generation of prophets are being born. During a high, they say, individualism is weak and institutions are strong and cohesive. During a high, children are protected and even overindulged, and as a result, grow up to be prophets. Because their material needs are largely taken care of, they're able to turn inward more. So this is sort of the peak of centripetal forces in society, and there tends to be prosperity and optimism and social cohesion, but also you could say excessive conformity and a neglect of kind of inner life. The next turning that happens is what they call an awakening, which they describe as the summer of the cycle. During an awakening, the previous nomad generation are dying off, the heroes are entering elderhood, the artists are entering midlife, the prophets are entering young adulthood, and the next nomad generation is being born. During an awakening, the rising generation of new prophets tends to attack the existing order in various ways, and they create some form of a spiritual awakening and kind of turn the focus of people more towards 
their inner lives. During an awakening, children are underprotected and even neglected, and thus they grow up to be nomads. And in general, during an awakening, there tends to be lots of social change and the emergence of new values that challenge the values that were dominant during the high. This is followed by a turning they refer to as an unraveling, right? The third turning. And this they describe as the autumn of the cycle. During an unraveling, the last generation of heroes are dying off and artists are becoming elders. Prophets are entering midlife. Nomads are entering young adulthood. And the next hero generation is being born. During an unraveling, institutions tend to be weak and distrusted and individualism tends to be strong. So, in other words, the centrifugal forces are accelerating during an unraveling. Then you have the fourth turning, or crisis, which they describe as the winter of the cycle. During this period, the previous artist generation are dying off, the prophets are entering elderhood, the nomads are entering midlife, the heroes are in young adulthood, and the next generation of artists are starting to be born. During a crisis, the old institutional structure, which had decayed significantly during the unraveling, starts to collapse and ultimately is going to be replaced by a new institutional structure. Centrifugal tendencies tend to peak and then things begin to move back in the other direction. And during this period, children, the next generation of artists, are generally overprotected during the crisis. And I should point out that according to Strauss and Howe, the United States is currently in the midst somewhere of a fourth turning. So the elders are the baby boom generation. The silent generation is in the process, essentially, of dying off, right? There's still a fair number of them around, but they're at least in their 80s at this point. So the boomers are your main elders currently. And then you've got Gen X. Right, a nomad generation are in midlife. The millennials, which they say are a hero generation, are in young adulthood. And then, you know, Gen Z, which they say are an artist generation, are in childhood. Previous fourth turning eras that they identify would include the Great Depression and World War II era, the Civil War, and the American Revolution. And of course, they go even further back than that in the fourth turning, but those are the three most recent fourth turning eras before now. The Revolutionary War era, the Civil War era, and the Great Depression slash World War II era. And if you'll notice, each of those eras is separated by a period of time that's approximately 80 to 100 years. So, you know, if you jump ahead 80 years from Pearl Harbor, where are you at? You're at 2021. So according to Strauss and Howe, we are in a fourth turning. So I want to zero in on this idea of a gray champion, because it's a term that Strauss and Howe use to describe a particular type of elderly leader who kind of steps in at the moment of crisis to help lead the way through it. Now, the term the gray champion to describe this sort of a figure comes from a short story by that title that was written in the 19th century by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and more on that story in a bit. In fact, I'm going to read it at the end of this episode. But the great champion is used by Strauss and Howe as an archetype to signify kind of an elderly member of a prophet generation who appears in a fourth turning or crisis situation. And the great champion is supposed to remind younger generations 
and especially the hero generation, who are supposed to be in young adulthood during the crisis and thus are going to be kind of the foot soldiers, either literally or metaphorically, of getting through the crisis, to remind younger generations of important values and principles, particularly values and principles that seem to have been lost and even forgotten during the awakening and unraveling periods. And the great champion is going to kind of like bring back these important values and principles and yet somehow update them for the new situation to help get through whatever is the new crisis. So the great champion is going to give particularly the young hero generation, the wisdom and encouragement to do the right thing and to defeat the crisis, whatever that means. And above all, the great champion is supposed to lead and guide these young heroes, these people who are the key to getting through the crisis. And you see this archetype, this generational pattern manifesting itself in many different ways in literature and film. So, things like Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, Dumbledore in Harry Potter, Merlin in the various King Arthur films and books, Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid, and on and on and on. We could come up with infinite examples of this, both from kind of pop culture and film, but also from, you know, kind of more respectable literature, kind of serious fiction and all that. Previous great champions that Strauss and Howe identify as being the key leaders getting through earlier fourth-turning or crisis eras in U.S. history would include George Washington, of course, leading through the Revolutionary War Crisis era, Abraham Lincoln leading through the Civil War era, and FDR leading through the Great Depression and World War II. So again, according to Strauss and Howe's theory, we're somewhere in the midst of a fourth-turning crisis era now. So the question is, where is our great champion? Who is our great champion? And dare I ask, is it Sleepy Uncle Joe? Now, say what you will about Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, and I certainly have plenty of complaints and criticisms about all of them in various ways. But I'll give them all their due on one thing. They all were, in their own unique ways, objectively speaking, impressive figures who do have some serious leadership skills of various sorts, and two of them, namely Lincoln and FDR, are among the greatest communicators and speakers to ever have held the office of presidency. Again, whatever you think about them ideologically or on policy or whatever, or even morally, the fact of the matter is they are two of the greatest communicators to have ever been president. And while Washington's leadership wasn't so much in that sort of a style, that kind of leadership wasn't really a big deal yet in Washington's era. Right, The ability to be charismatic and be a public speaker and whatever was not yet as central to the role of being a leader in the United States as it was by Lincoln's era and even more so by FDR's era. You know, when you have things like the radio and film that allow a president to communicate directly to a mass audience. So again, while I disagree with Washington, Lincoln, and FDR on many things, I can at least give them their due as great leaders, if not good men, all the time. And I can at least wrap my head around why many people would have responded to these guys' leadership during their respective eras. And then there's sleepy comrade Uncle Joe. Does he inspire anyone? Does he have any genuine leadership skills? I mean, sure, he's got some types of political skills. 
he wouldn't have been around as long as he has been if he didn't have any type of political skills. But real leadership qualities? Did anyone who voted for him really vote for him? Or did basically all of those who voted for him really just vote against Trump? And aside from that, is he really offering any actual solutions that get at any of the fundamental roots of this country's many, many problems? Or is he at most just trying to kind of bandage over a few things, kind of keep the thing, the status quo, the system, held together with duct tape and chewing gum and bailing wire for at least a few more years, and really all he's doing is just offering the very unsatisfactory and very, very unsustainable status quo, only if anything a bit more so of that status quo. There was a potential gray champion who could have at least started to address some of the real fundamental problems of the system. And that, of course, is Ron Paul, but of course, he was blacklisted and sabotaged by what we now think of as the cathedral. And so, while he got a significant and very passionate following, including lots of young people, right, which is exactly what a great champion is supposed to do above all else, is to inspire and guide those who are in kind of the young adult age bracket. He definitely did that, but not on a wide enough scale to become the great champion. He didn't get the Republican Party's nomination in either 08 or 2012. So, of course, he had no shot at actually becoming president. So, yeah, Ron Paul, who is the opposite of Joe Biden in a lot of ways, could have been the great champion we really needed. Now, Ron Paul is the opposite of Joe Biden in a lot of ways, but they also have some very interesting similarities, including, depending on who you talk to, they're of the same generation, and they were born in the same state. Ron Paul was born in 1935 in Pittsburgh, PA, and 1935 makes him dead smack in the middle of the silent generation. No matter whose definition of the silent generation you go with, Ron Paul being born in 35 is like right smack dab in the middle. And then there's Joe Biden, born in 1942, also in PA, although in his case it was in Scranton. Most definitions of generations will put him at the very tail end of the silent generation. The most common definition for the official beginning of the baby boom generation is usually either 1945 or 1946. Strauss and Howe, for their part, actually start the baby boom generation a little bit earlier than most. They say the baby boom generation really starts at 43, 1943. But regardless of where you start the baby boom generation, whether you started at 43, 45, or 46, Biden is at the very end of the silent generation. Which means that he's what they call in generational lingo a cusper. Someone who's on the cusp, someone who's born right on the borderland, kind of somewhat gray area between two generations. I myself am one of these. I was born in 81, so depending on who you ask, I'm either at the very end of Gen X or the very beginning of the Millennials. Cuspers can sometimes be a blend of the two generations that they're sort of in the middle of, and sometimes they can kind of lean more backward towards the generation prior or more forward towards the generation coming after, depending on circumstances. And as I've said before, I myself always lean more towards Gen X in terms of who I identify with and what I feel myself to be a part of in a number of different ways. And to me, when you look at Biden, yes, technically he might be at the very end of the silent generation, but 
he has always struck me as personality wise, very much a boomer and certainly much more of a boomer than he is a silent generation type. But regardless, he's seven years younger than Ron Paul, which means when Biden was running for the presidency in 2020, he was basically the same age that Ron Paul was back during his last presidential run in 2012. Now, Ron Paul, even people who disagree with him ideologically, will usually admit, if they're at all intellectually honest, they'll admit that Ron Paul is conspicuously honest, not corrupt, and he has a coherent, well-thought-out worldview that he can explain from first principles, which almost no politician has that quality. And in my opinion, at least in 2008 and 2012, he was offering the American people the real forgotten wisdom of old regarding things like liberty, peace, personal responsibility, prudence, fiscal sanity, sound money, and so forth. He was really offering the American people an off-ramp, not out of a crisis, but to kind of prevent the crisis at least to some degree by seeing it before it fully hit and taking as much measures as possible within his moral and ideological framework to try to prevent the crisis as much as possible and manage the aspects of it that could not be prevented. He was offering the American people an off-ramp away from how things have been for several generations, if not longer. An off-ramp away from imperialism abroad and police statism at home. He was offering the true forgotten wisdom and knowledge of an older time period that would have been the way to avert the disasters that were coming, because the path that the American empire is on is clearly unsustainable to anyone with even a basic understanding of real economics and real history. Joe Biden, by contrast, is a man of no real philosophy or principles other than ambition, opportunism, lust for power, and just kind of a vague, fuzzy, progressive statism of the corporatist variety. He really is a walking embodiment of the establishment, the cathedral, whatever you want to call it, and everything that is wrong with it. So to me, Ron Paul was the gray champion that this country really needed. He had the intellect and the knowledge to understand the real roots of our problems, and he had serious, bold proposals to try to really address them. He was uncorrupt and honest almost to a fault when he was in politics. And like any good doctor, he would always tell you what you needed to hear, even and perhaps especially when it's not what you necessarily wanted to hear. On the other hand, it seems to me that Joe Biden really is the great champion this country deserves. He's corrupt. He's dishonest. He's a liar and a plagiarist, among other things. He really is, in many ways, kind of America's Brezhnev. He's clueless, senile, stuck in the past, corrupt as hell, surrounded by yes-men and toadies, basically just trying to hold together the broken system that he's inherited for another few years. And he's supported by 
a press who are essentially trying to gaslight the population into believing that this really unimpressive figure is somehow a great leader. And frankly, given the poor character and stupidity of so much of the American population, I think it's fair to say that Joe Biden really is much more representative of them than is someone like Ron Paul. So while you and I might deserve Ron Paul as our great champion, and in a way he was for those of us who were hip to things 10 or 12 years ago, let's be honest. Looking at this nation and its people as a whole, overall, Joe Biden really is the great champion that this long-since-jumped-the-shark empire deserves. And now, I'm going to end this episode by reading the short story The Great Champion by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which was written back in the 1830s and which is set in late 17th century Massachusetts during the time of the English Glorious Revolution. Just a tiny bit of historical background if you're not familiar, this would have been after a couple of generations of Puritans had been in Massachusetts as settlers and colonists, right? So Puritans had first started settling in Massachusetts in the 1630s. And the story is set roughly around 1688, give or take a year or two, which is the time of the so-called English Glorious Revolution in which, back over in England, Catholic-friendly James II would be overthrown by the Dutch Protestant Prince William of Orange, which was something that hardcore Protestants like the Puritans would, of course, strongly support. But when the Glorious Revolution was happening in England, across the sea in some of the colonies, the authorities who had previously been appointed by James were not always willing to step down gracefully. So, this story is set during that time, in late 17th century Massachusetts. So I hope you enjoy my reading of The Great Champion by Nathaniel Hawthorne, and as you listen, maybe ask yourself if The Great Champion that is depicted in this story seems more like Joe Biden or more like Ron Paul. There was once a time when New England groaned under the actual pressure of heavier wrongs than those threatened ones which brought on the revolution. James II, the bigoted successor of Charles the Voluptuous, had annulled the charters of all the colonies and sent a harsh and unprincipled soldier to take away our liberties and endanger our religion. The administration of Sir Edmund Andrews lacked scarcely a single characteristic of tyranny. A governor and council holding office from the king and wholly independent of the country. Laws made and taxes levied without concurrence of the people immediate or by their representatives. The rights of private citizens violated and the titles of all landed property declared void. The voice of complaint stifled by restrictions on the press. And finally, disaffection overawed by the first band of mercenary troops that ever marched on our free soil. 
For two years, our ancestors were kept in sullen submission by that filial love which had invariably secured their allegiance to the mother country, whether its head chanced to be a parliament, protector, or popish monarch. Till these evil times, however, such allegiance had been merely nominal, and the colonists had ruled themselves, enjoying far more freedom than is even yet the privilege of the native subjects of Great Britain. At length, a rumor reached our shores that the Prince of Orange had ventured on an enterprise, the success of which would be the triumph of civil and religious rights and the salvation of New England. It was but a doubtful whisper. It might be false, or the attempt might fail, and in either case, the man that stirred against King James would lose his head. Still, the intelligence produced a marked effect. The people smiled mysteriously in the streets and threw bold glances at their oppressors, while far and wide there was a subdued and silent agitation, as if the slightest signal would rouse the whole land from its sluggish despondency. Aware of their danger, the rulers resolved to avert it by an imposing display of strength and perhaps to confirm their despotism by yet harsher measures. One afternoon in April 1689, Sir Edmund Andros and his favorite counselors, being warm with wine, assembled the redcoats of the governor's guard and made their appearance in the streets of Boston. The sun was near setting when the march commenced. The roll of the drum at that unquiet crisis seemed to go through the streets, less as the martial music of the soldiers than as a muster call to the inhabitants themselves. A multitude by various avenues assembled in King Street, which was destined to be the scene, nearly a century afterwards, of another encounter between the troops of Britain and a people struggling against her tyranny. Though more than sixty years had elapsed since the pilgrims came, this crowd of their descendants still showed the strong and somber features of their character perhaps more strikingly in such a stern emergency than on happier occasions. There were the sober garb, the general severity of mien, the gloomy but undismayed expression, the scriptural forms of speech, and the confidence in heaven's blessing on a righteous cause, which would have marked a band of the original Puritans when threatened by some peril of the wilderness. Indeed, it was not yet time for the old spirit to be extinct since there were men in the street that day who had worshipped there beneath the trees before a house was reared to the god for whom they had become exiles. Old soldiers of the parliament were here too, smiling grimly at the thought that their aged arms might strike yet another blow against the house of Stuart. Here also were the veterans of King Philip's war who had burned villages and slaughtered young and old with pious fierceness, while the godly souls throughout the land were helping them with prayer. Several ministers were scattered among the crowd, which, unlike all other mobs, regarded them with such reverence, as if there were sanctity in their very garments. These holy men exerted their influence to quiet the people, but not to disperse them. Meantime, the purpose of the governor, in disturbing the peace of the town at a period when the slightest commotion might throw the country into a ferment, was almost the universal object of inquiry, and variously explained. 
Satan will strike his master stroke presently, cried some, because he knoweth that his time is short. All our godly pastors are to be dragged to prison. We shall see them at a Smithfield fire in King Street. Hereupon the people of each parish gathered closer round their minister, who looked calmly upwards and assumed a more apostolic dignity, as well befitted a candidate for the highest honor of his profession, the crown of martyrdom. It was actually fancied, at that period, that New England might have a John Rogers of her own to take the place of that worthy in the primer. "'The Pope of Rome has given orders for a new St. Bartholomew,' cried others. "'We are to be massacred, man and male child.' Neither was this rumor wholly discredited, although the wiser class believed the governor's object somewhat less atrocious. His predecessor under the old charter, Bradstreet, a venerable companion of the first settlers, was known to be in town. There were grounds for conjecturing that Sir Edmund Andrews intended at once to strike terror by a parade of military force, and to confound the opposite faction by possessing himself of their chief. "'Stand firm for the old charter governor,' shouted the crowd, seizing upon the idea. "'The good old Governor Bradstreet.' While this cry was at the loudest, the people were surprised by the well-known figure of Governor Bradstreet himself, a patriarch of nearly ninety, who appeared on the elevated steps of a door and with characteristic mildness besought them to submit to the constituted authorities. My children, concluded this venerable person, do nothing rashly. Cry not aloud, but pray for the welfare of New England, and expect patiently what the Lord will do in this matter. The event was soon to be decided. All this time the roll of the drum had been approaching through Cornhill, till with reverberations from house to house and the regular tramp of martial footsteps, it burst into the street. A double rank of soldiers made their appearance, occupying the whole breadth of the passage, with shouldered matchlocks and matches burning, so as to present a row of fires in the dusk. Their steady march was like the progress of a machine that would roll irresistibly over everything in its way. Next, moving slowly with a confused clatter of hoofs on the pavement, rode a party of mounted gentlemen, the central figure being Sir Edmund Andros, elderly but erect and soldier-like. Those around him were his favorite counselors and the bitterest foes of New England. At his right hand rode Edward Randolph, our arch-enemy, that blasted wretch, as Cotton Mather calls him who achieved the downfall of our ancient government, and was followed with a sensible curse through life and to his grave. On the other side was Bullivant, scattering jests and mockery as he rode along. Dudley came behind, with a downcast look, dreading, as well he might, to meet the indignant gaze of the people who beheld him, their only countryman by birth, among the oppressors of his native land. The captain of a frigate in the harbor and two or three civil officers under the crown were also there. But the figure which most attracted the public eye and stirred up the deepest feeling was the Episcopal clergyman of King's Chapel, riding haughtily among the magistrates in his priestly vestments, the fitting representatives of prelacy and persecution, the union of church and state, and all those abominations which had driven the Puritans to the wilderness. Another guard of soldiers in double rank brought up the rear. 
The whole scene was a picture of the condition of New England and its moral, the deformity of any government that does not grow out of the nature of things and the character of the people. On one side, the religious multitude, with their sad visages and dark attire, and on the other, the group of despotic rulers, with the high churchmen in the midst, and here and there a crucifix at their bosoms, all magnificently clad, flushed with wine, proud of unjust authority, and scoffing at the universal groan. And the mercenary soldiers waiting, but the word, to deluge the streets with blood, showed the only means by which obedience could be secured. O Lord of hosts, cried a voice among the crowd, provide a champion for thy people. This ejaculation was loudly uttered and served as a herald's cry to introduce a remarkable personage. The crowd had rolled back and were now huddled together nearly at the extremity of the street while the soldiers had advanced no more than a third of its length. The intervening space was empty, a paved solitude between lofty edifices which threw almost a twilight shadow over it. Suddenly, there was seen the figure of an ancient man who seemed to have emerged from among the people and was walking by himself along the center of the street to confront the armed band. He wore the old Puritan dress, a dark cloak and steeple-crowned hat, in the fashion of at least fifty years before with a heavy sword upon his thigh, but a staff in his hand to assist the tremulous gait of age. When at some distance from the multitude, the old man turned slowly around, displaying a face of antique majesty, rendered doubly venerable by the hoary beard that descended on his breast. He made a gesture at once of encouragement and warning, then turned again and resumed his way. Who is this gray patriarch? asked the young men of their sires. Who is this venerable brother? asked the old men among themselves. But none could make reply. The fathers of the people, those of fourscore years and upwards, were disturbed, deeming it strange that they should forget one of such evident authority, whom they must have known in their early days, the associate of Winthrop and all the old counselors giving laws and making prayers and leading them against the savage. The elderly men sought to have remembered him too, with locks as gray in their youth as their own were now. And the young, how could he have passed so utterly from their memories? That hoary sire, the relic of long-departed times, whose awful benediction had surely been bestowed on their uncovered heads in childhood. Whence did he come? What is his purpose? Who can this old man be? whispered the wondering crowd. Meanwhile, the venerable stranger, staff in hand, was pursuing his solitary walk along the center of the street. As he drew near the advancing soldiers, and as the roll of their drum came full upon his ears, the old man raised himself to a loftier mien, while the decrepitude of age seemed to fall from his shoulders, leaving him in gray but unbroken dignity. Now he marched onward with a warrior's step, keeping time to the military music. Thus the aged form advanced on one side and the whole parade of soldiers and magistrates on the other, when scarcely twenty yards remained between. The old man grasped his staff by the middle and held it before him like a leader's truncheon. Stand, cried he, 
the eye, the face, the attitude of command. The solemn yet warlike peal of that voice, fit either to rule a host in the battlefield or be raised to God in prayer, were irresistible. At the old man's word and outstretched arm, the roll of the drum was hushed at once, and the line stood still. A tremulous enthusiasm seized upon the multitude. That stately form, combining the leader and the saint, so gray, so dimly seen, in such an apparent garb, could only belong to some old champion of the righteous cause, whom the oppressor's drum had summoned from his grave. They raised a shout of awe and exultation and looked for the deliverance of New England. The governor and the gentlemen of his party, perceiving themselves brought to an unexpected stand, rode hastily forward, as if they would have pressed their snorting and affrighted horses right against the hoary apparition. He, however, blenched not a step, but glancing his severe eye round the group which half encompassed him, at last bent it sternly on Sir Edmund Andros. One would have thought that the dark old man was chief ruler there, and that the governor and council, with soldiers at their back, representing the whole power and authority of the crown, had no alternative but obedience. "'What does this old fellow here?' cried Edward Randolph fiercely. "'On, Sir Edmund, bid the soldiers forward, and give the daughter the same choice that you give all his countrymen, to stand aside or be trampled on. "'Nay, nay, let us show respect to the good grandsire,' said Bullivant, laughing. See you not he is some old round-headed dignitary, who hath lain asleep these thirty years, and knows nothing of the change of the times. Doubtless he thinks to put us down, with a proclamation in old Knoll's name. Are you mad, old man? demanded Sir Edmund Andros in loud and harsh tones. How dare you stay the march of King James's governor? I have stayed the march of a king himself ere now, replied the grey figure with stern composure. I am here, Sir Governor, because the cry of an oppressed people hath disturbed me in my secret place, and beseeching this favor earnestly of the Lord, it was vouchsafed me to appear once again on earth, in the good old cause of his saints. And what speak ye of James? There is no longer a popish tyrant on the throne of England, and by tomorrow noon his name shall be a byword in this very street where you would make it a word of terror. Back, thou wast a governor, back. With this night thy power is ended. Tomorrow the prison. Back, lest I foretell the scaffold. The people had been drawing nearer and nearer and drinking in the words of their champion who spoke in accents long disused, like one unaccustomed to converse, except with the dead of many years ago. But his voice stirred their souls. They confronted the soldiers, not wholly without arms, and ready to convert the very stones of the street into deadly weapons. Sir Edmund Andros looked at the old man. Then he cast his hard and cruel eye over the multitude and beheld them burning with that lurid wrath so difficult to kindle or to quench, and again he fixed his gaze on the aged form, which stood obscurely in an open space, where neither friend nor foe had thrust himself. What were his thoughts he uttered no word which might discover. 
But whether the oppressor were overawed by the great champion's look or perceived his peril in the threatening attitude of the people, it is certain that he gave back and ordered his soldiers to commence a slow and guarded retreat. Before another sunset, the governor and all that rode so proudly with him were prisoners. And long ere it was known that James had abdicated, King William was proclaimed throughout New England. But where was the great champion? Some reported that, when the troops had gone from King Street, and the people were thronging tumultuously in their rear, Bradstreet, the aged governor, was seen to embrace a form more aged than his own. Others soberly affirmed that while they marveled at the venerable grandeur of his aspect, the old man had faded from their eyes, melting slowly into the hues of twilight, till, where he stood, there was empty space. But all agreed that the hoary shape was gone. The men of that generation watched for his reappearance, in sunshine and in twilight, but never saw him more, nor knew when his funeral passed, nor where his gravestone was. And who was the great champion? Perhaps his name might be found in the records of that stern court of justice, which passed a sentence, too mighty for the age, but glorious in all after times, for its humbling lesson to the monarch and its high example to the subject. I have heard that whenever the descendants of the Puritans are to show the spirit of their sires, the old man appears again. When eighty years had passed, he walked once more in King Street. Five years later, in the twilight of an April morning, he stood on the green beside the meeting house at Lexington, where now the obelisk of granite, with the slab of slate inlaid, commemorates the first fallen of the revolutions. And when our fathers were toiling at the breastworks on Bunker's Hill all through that night, the old warrior walked his rounds. Long, long may it be ere he comes again. His hour is one of darkness and adversity and peril. But should domestic tyranny oppress us or the invader's step pollute our soil, still may the great champion come. For he is the type of New England's hereditary spirit and his shadowy march on the eve of danger must ever be the pledge that New England's sons will vindicate their ancestry.
you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else, as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warrior's private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc., to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.